Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. popular science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Ariel Zimros. Ariel, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me again, guys. Yeah, it's been a while, and um, since you were last here, you have started a new show at, at Vice. Would you tell our listeners yeah. a little bit about that before we get into it? Yeah, I guess I was already on the other show, right? Because I host two podcasts, so so now it's yeah the, the other one we had previously I, talked about. I don't remember Everything's which show very you confusing. were getting ready for right? the last time you were on. <laughs> Ariel, Great. who has had many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so... Yes. Uh, so I currently host two podcasts. One is called Vice News Reports. It's a weekly news show advice. It is very good documentary style. Like we really try and make it sound immersive. And then the other one, which is maybe a little bit more relevant to this audience, is called <laughs> A Show About Animals. Um, and it is, can I say this? It is a total delight. That's how I feel. Of about course, it. you can like say that. that. I mean, I, okay. Let me <laughs> say that. Delightful. That's how it feels for me working on it, like yeah. a total delight. Um, and basically, what I'm going to be talking about today is like the entire subject of season one of that show. So I'm I'm not going to talk about a show about animals for too long. <laughs> I thought you were going to be it. like, I thought you were going to say like, can I say this? It's mother bananas. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, no, I, <laughs> I was going to be like, yeah, we can bleep it. It's fine. <laughs> um, so on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, making a whole other different podcast, etc. And decide which one we absolutely have to hear more about first. 
Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, why don't you start with your tease? So I am talking about how one of America's least favorite vegetables kind of found its way to popularity and on the menu of pretty much anywhere you can go get swanky dinner. <laughs> okay, oh, cool. I love a an underdog, a comeback yeah. story. <laughs> um, all right, my tease is that I want to talk about Snake Island, a place called Snake Island for good reason. Which I'm in be- already. Like, I, I want to <laughs> I go I picked this just for you, Ariel. <laughs> you know Ariel so studied well. herpetology as an undergrad, and I know that because we are good friends. And I said, <laughs> snakes? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> Ariel, how about your tease? Uh, so I will be talking about how a field of research in psychology that was trying to teach American Sign Language to great apes, like gorillas and chimps back in the 1970s, completely imploded uh so so that's that's why i'm here amazing hmm what do we want to start with i think i am so intrigued by the um the kind of clickbait cliffhanger of sarah kiley's story that i would really love to hear about these vegetables I think the thing is that I, I'm like, I think I know which vegetable it is, and I just want you to give me the answer, like, now, now. <laughs> oh, the thing is, you 100% know it. Like, this is, like, a this is like a weirdest thing that kind of, like, has, like, been trickled. Like, I've seen, seen this discourse happening multiple times, but I was like, I need to actually figure out what in the world's it's going on. It's time to so. address the nation. <laughs> address the nation. Yeah. So, um, if you haven't guessed it already, I am talking about da-na-na, Brussels sprouts. Yay. So nice. these days it seems like you can't go get food anywhere without there being Brussels sprouts on the menu at some variety, you know, fried or like roasted with like fancy dipping sauce. And this is relatively new, like in the past like handful of years, most of our first associations with Brussels are like the glompy, steamed or boiled little mini cabbages that kind of smelled awful and were force fed to us. Um, but especially if you grew up in Northern Europe in the UK, Brussels sprouts have been a staple for centuries. So lots of people are used to the glomp. <laughs> But like a lot of our vegetable favorites, Brussels sprouts, as we know them today, have come from a long line of genetic modifications, even one in the last few decades that has taken them from an icky side dish that when overcooked can have a heinous old egg smell to something many joyously dip in an aioli like a cute cabbagey French fry. So how do we get there? Let's start at the very beginning. So we're starting at level one of the Brussels sprouts. The ancient history of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> as long as humans have farmed, and that's, you know, 10,000 years or so, they've been picking and choosing ways to make their crops tastier, survive better, grow bigger, and so on. And the Brussels sprout is the same as any other, its oldest relative being the Brassica oleracea, also known as the ornamental or wild cabbage. And honestly, this wild cabbage looks more like a weed that would grow off the side of the highway than in somebody's... It's not like those weird ornamental cabbages they have all over the city. Like, I, there's just a lot of cabbage going on. It all comes... <laughs> Wait. Like, there's a couple... Ornamental yeah. cabbages all over the city? You know that I noticed nothing, Rachel, but what are you talking about? <laughs> so, you'll... I feel like if you Google ornamental cabbage, you'll be like, oh, because in planters... In urban areas, I feel like particularly around New York, 
often in like really commercial districts, instead of flowers, the planter will have basically like a very purpley. Yes. Yes. I have seen those. It's just a very robust, colorful cabbage. But every time I see them, I'm like, in fact, actually during like the the early months of the pandemic, when you had to wait like an hour outside a grocery store Mm -hmm. to get food at best. Yeah, there they are. We'll post a picture on popside.com slash weird for those of you. Maybe. Um, but I would be like, I would be like, you know, it was like a three hour expedition to go get groceries if I was lucky. And there were a bunch of ornamental cabbages like left to die in the building next to me. And I was like, should I like steal these? <laughs> should I, should I uh, like reappropriate this cabbage? So did the you? People? Anyway. Um, I didn't because they mm. got really gross looking very fast. So mm. by the time um, by the time uh, my canned goods were in low reserve, um, the cabbage no longer appealed. And also it mm. had been out in like the Ucky City air. I don't know. It right. was like a, like a sidewalk cabbage. It wasn't. A, <laughs> it was a sidewalk, sidewalk cabbage, cabbage, not a very appealing cabbage. Anyway, I feel like so I've maybe totally not like that. derailed maybe. this conversation, but I was like, what are you talking about? And now my life is finished. <laughs> So thank you. <laughs> no, I, I'm here for all the cabbage discussion. I'm happy to hear all of it. But um, the oldest, like the like ancientest ca- cabbage cousin, like kind of looks like this like highway weed. It's got these long spindly leaves and these little um, yellow flowers that pop up. And it originally sprouted along limestone in the coastal Mediterranean. Um, but actually, this little weedy looking thing turned into... Um, a bunch of different things. So while that doesn't sound like a tasty salad base, um, basically modified of that versions of that same species have made it to your plate at some point. It's um, like notably, every plant, like <laughs> like, like every a vegetable. lot of plant. Like you're, it's like the leafy green grandpa. Yeah. And so, according to this um, researcher at Purdue named Jean Osmus, um, the Brassica oleracea is the starting point species for kale. Collard greens, Chinese broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, broccoli, and cauliflower. It's all basically just a a funky version of this little weed-looking thing. And so I love that. Yeah. Like we've all been eating the same kind of thing and just a bunch of different varieties. But all of these different things came from messing around with cultivating different bits and pieces of the actual plant. Mm. So the first one that we messed with was the leaves. And by around 300 BCE ancient Greek botanist Theoprastus was already talking about the leafy varieties of brassica, like kale and collard green looking things, um, which are the most similar to the original wild cabbage and were created through breeding for expanded leaves. You know, this is probably the moment where I should admit that I thought you were going to talk about kale, not Brussels sprouts. Honestly, like their stories are so similar because it is like their cousins. But this one, there's there's a twist in this. Okay. There's there's an additional... Okay, I'm ready. Hee hee ha ha in there. So, um, but later, okay, so we've got the kale. The kale is the first, the kale and collard and leafy greens like that are the first among things that are, you know, developed. And then came the big cabbage, which is the terminal bud, a cluster of immature leaves arising from the shoot meristem tissue on the original plant. And a big terminal bud plus those kale-like leaves gave way to what we know today as white, red, and savoy cabbage. Okay, and then next... We get the beloved Brussels sprout, which is an expansion of the auxiliary buds or the little buds that line the side of the stem. Oh. So there's smaller versions of the terminal bud, um, and that's why they look like little cabbages. And there's a lot of debate as to when 
anyone figured out how to do this, but it's likely sometime around the 13th century and, of course, Brussels, Belgium, Brussels sprouts. To get Brussels sprouts in their best form, you have to chop them off of the stem while the little leaves are still bound tight, or they will actually just grow into their own little stems. Um, the Purdue researcher Osnes wrote that you can actually see the little auxiliary stems, the stems that are about to happen, if you slice Brussels sprouts and braise them in stock, and then toss them with brown butter in which you have popped brown mustard seeds. So I've not done that yet. I don't really have any popped brown mustard seeds around, but if you wanted to see um, the stems of the little Brussels sprouts doing their best, that's a fun little science experiment that might end up tasty. Cool. It's good for the holidays <laughs> but, too, right? Brussels sprouts? Like Yeah, yeah. And Thanksgiving and Christmas are like the ultimate Brussels sprout o'clock. Right. Like they sell a bunch of them right now. So You did this on purpose, that. didn't you? You were like, I want to be seasonal. Well, I mean, <laughs> it ended up working out well. I think I just like was like, I know that the Brussels sprout story is weird. And so I finally like was like, okay, we're going to we're going to spend some time on cool. it. <laughs> But for the rest of the um, Brassica family, the further expansion of the stem gave way to kohlrabi, which looks like a little radish with a bunch of stems creeping out of it. And then expanding the inflorescence or the clusters of those little flowers gave us broccoli and cauliflower. And then mixing and matching with cauliflower and veggie breeding gave us broccolini and broccoli flower as well. So we've got this whole pile of things that we love to eat today or, you know. If you don't like veggies and you don't love to eat them. <laughs> you might eat them. You might not You might to have them. to eat them so that you can stay healthy. Um, but they all came from the same thing. But um, something that stuck around from the original plant, the, you know, little weedy guy, was the resistance to cold weather. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more. But that probably helped um, all of these different varieties of plants take off around different parts of Europe and the world. And Brussels sprouts had made it themselves to like France, England, and so on around um, the later 18th century. But because these were such hardy plants, um, they had a bitter taste. And so in the past couple of years, there's been more research on where they get these, this bitter taste from and why people sometimes are like, ew, I don't want to eat this. It's so bitter. <laughs> um, and so the bitterness comes from glucosinolates in Brussels and other members of the Brassica family, which um, they have an important role of defending the plant against pests and herbivores like Munch, munch, munching them. And in the past few years, there's been a handful of studies that this compound might help humans ward off bacterial, viral, and fungal infections in their intestines and other parts of the body. And some studies out there, um, you know, take with a grain of salt, say they may even lower your risk of certain cancers. So lots of help. We already knew that, though. If you eat kale and lots of stuff like that, you're doing a good thing for your body. But recent research shown, has shown that some people have a certain gene called the TAS2R38 gene, really catchy stuff right there, <laughs> um, that, that interlocks with a chemical called phenylalocarbamine. So I may have just completely ruined that, but if you want to do the pronunciation, I, I honor you. That is fabulous. Um, but it's called <laughs> PTC as well. Um, and so this gives off the taste of bitterness and kind of in the same way that Certain molecules lock into our tongue surface proteins to tell you if something's salty, sour, or sweet. Um, these proteins are like extra tough with bitterness. So you're, if you have this gene, you're going to notice bitterness a lot more. And while Brussels and their brassica siblings don't contain PTC, the glucosinolates in the plant break down into isothiocyanates when they're damaged or cooked. These isothiocyanates have similar properties to PTC, which means to around 70% of the population, Brussels give off some seriously bitter flavor. Mm. Honestly, Brussels in general are bitter, but for this group of folks, the bitterness is nearly unbearable. And the hatred of bitterness is genetic, of course. So if you can't stand your leafy greens, you can literally blame your parents. Love that. <laughs> um, but let's... <laughs> 
but let's throw some history back in here since this is a little bit of a history story as well. But back in the 1960s, farmers started using seeds that increased their yield of Brussels sprouts, but not necessarily their yumminess. A Brussels sprout farmer named Steve Bonadelli told Mel last year that in the late 1960s, the industry switched over to mechanized harvesting, which required a plant that would mature fairly evenly over the entire stem. Uh, so the Cicada Seed Company developed the first plants that would mature evenly, and they were beautiful and green with lots of pr production, but they were horribly bitter, and we turned off an entire generation. So, wow. Oh, interesting. So we've got these okay. bitter Brussels that are popping up and also like brussels sprouts are still kind of niche as we're going into this like not everybody's just like frying up brussels sprouts like they're still mostly being eaten in the northeast and canada and then over in europe and like the uk where they're right. you know being boiled. so kind of as the really bitter ones proliferated there were a lot of people who were like that was the first time they were eating them so they right. weren't like what happened to the brussels sprouts yeah, so the Brussels sprouts were already bitter to begin with, and then 70% of people were like, these are too bitter, and then we started breeding extra <laughs> bitter ones. So we just have this, you know, storm of Brussels bitterness. But nowadays, so we fast forward today, they're everywhere and people love them. Right. Um, so we're going to walk through that little bit now. So um, throughout a decent deal of the late 20th century, Brussels sprouts were just pretty nasty, especially when boiled, and those glucosinolates couldn't really express their sulfury stench. So if you've ever overboiled Brussels sprouts, you, you know I the, have you done know that. the smell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it's not delicious. But um, then everything started to change in the 90s when a Dutch scientist named Hans von Dorn, who was then at Novartis, but now um, the seed part of that company is called Syngenta, um, he put two and two together. He said glucosinolates were why people didn't love Brussels. He and other Dutch researchers started doing some interbreeding between the hardy, high-yielding varieties of the modern day with the less glucosinolate-filled varieties of the past. So we're making a new version that has still some of that, you know, easy to harvest, tough, but not, you know, super, super bitter. And according to um, Pim Nefios, who is now the leader of the um, leafy green and brassica department at Syngenta, said that the scientists did taste tests with people, which is kind of funny when you think about Brussels sprouts like back in the 90s, because, you know, you do taste tests with like strawberries and tomatoes because you buy those because you want them to be tasty. Brussels sprouts, you're like, oh, yes, this is a healthy food and I'm going to boil it and force it, feed it to my children. But they did... Um, a bunch of taste tests, and basically they found that the glucosinolates did correlate with people liking them. Um, most people, especially younger folks, prefer preferred the milder, less glucosinolate-heavy varieties, um, but older people actually stuck to their roots, and they were like, we like the bitter ones. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to take away from that. Um, and good for that's them. that's what happened. Good for them. Good for yeah. them. Uh, yeah. Brussels sprouts so, um, just don't um, taste the way they do. They used to, you know? They, like they literally too. don't taste the way Get they used to. Get to be really to. mad about everything, including Brussels sprouts. <laughs> like, this is the one thing where it's like, okay, they really have changed. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in my so, day. Back in my day. Yeah, so um, in around 1994, the mild varieties started coming out onto the market. Um, and then from the two early 2000s and onwards, they have kind of exploded. So thanks to a growing awareness of how healthy they are and probably the fast fact that they don't taste awful anymore, seven out of ten Brussels sprouts now come from Syngenta, the place where they figured all of this out. And um, 
Bontadelli, that Brussels sprout farmer, he, he's talked to a lot of people about this. I have a lot of fun quotes from him <laughs> that I've gleaned during this process. But he told NPR um, in 2019 that there were only about 2,500 acres in the whole country planted with Brussels sprouts just a few years ago. But, you know, today there are 10,000 acres of Brussels sprouts in the U.S. And since there's year-round demand for Brussels sprouts now, everybody wants them with, you know, like fried up with bacon or I'm, I'm an aioli dipper myself. I do like to like chop them up and then have like a little fun dip, Mm -hmm. but um, people want them year round. And so there's tons of fields being planted in Mexico as well, just so we can keep having more Brussels sprouts, which it would have been crazy 20 years ago when everyone just was like, "Uh -uh, no, (laughs) no, thank you. And also, so another fun thing is that demand is swapped from mostly frozen Brussels sprouts too fresh. So back in the day, it was like an 80-20 frozen fresh. And now Mm. 85% of them are being like farmed for fresh and then 15% for frozen. So Mm. more people are figuring out that if you don't, you know, steam them, et cetera, like they might taste a little bit better roasted. Um, And so, yeah. And, but just thinking like in 2008, there was a, there's a poll from Heinz, I think, that showed that Brussels sprouts were America's most hated vegetable. And nowadays... They are literally everywhere, um, and that's that's for a reason, and it's because of genetic modification. That that's the reason for Brussels sprouts in the be- at all, and it's the reason <laughs> why they are yummy now. So that's my little story. Cool. I love this because, um, like, I remember hearing a few times throughout my adulthood, like Brussels sprouts being used as brussels sprout as as the uh like top example of like yeah you didn't like that when you were a kid um because like bitter flavors bother kids more and then you got used to them as an adult and it's like no that was a lie that was (laughs) a different thing they were gross and i knew they were gross (laughs) and when i was two years old the world changed for the better exactly (laughs) I know that's no really more gaslighting on Brussels sprouts not being good. Like they're good now, they were not good then. Right, exactly. <laughs> I really feel like this is a kind of a wonderful story. I am, I you, I'm assuming you don't have the answer to this next question, so I maybe shouldn't ask it. But do you know what is the most hated vegetable today? <laughs> I was wondering that too. Um, I honestly don't. Uh, those, I think it was like the second place, or maybe kids hated eggplant the second. Oh or yeah, that like makes that. sense. Yeah, sure. I can, I can see that from a textural out. standpoint. Yeah. I'm not a big eggplant girl either, so I, I understand. I but... like it, but it's one of those things a lot of people cook wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 100%. I think that's also part of it is learning how to cook your vegetables. The um, guy from Syngenta was like, everyone just needs to learn how to cook as well. Like, everyone just needs <laughs> to learn. really fair. <laughs> We're talking like, about like, many demographics in America. These, like, it's like let's let's figure out how to cook the vegetables and make sure they're deli- as delicious as possible. I mean, so, I spent um, my whole childhood thinking I hated pork chops specifically, which was very weird because I didn't dislike other pork products. <laughs> and then I realized that my grandma, God bless her soul, an <laughs> angel who who provided so much care and love for us, was really bad at cooking pork chops. She would just yeah, she would cook those. Within just fry the heck out of them a centimeter of their life yeah well and it's because i think there was she was taught that like they were dangerous if you didn't cook them enough and yeah. i think that was like a really a really common thing in uh like 60s american cooking so anyway i i think probably a lot of things we don't like we are just bad at making <laughs> <laughs> 
that's probably true. It's probably true. <sighs> well, important uh, reminder to always be um, open to trying things you hated as a kid because maybe uh, a genetic engineering seed company <laughs> has fixed it for you in the interim. Maybe the Dutch scientists are looking out for you and making it better. Yeah, as we maybe speak. it's better. Now. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And um, I'm going to talk about Snake Island. <laughs> so one of the ways that I often find facts for this show, um, because I keep needing to find new facts, <laughs> I was able to get through like the first two seasons based on just like stuff I knew randomly. Right. <laughs> but then I th- then I started having to um, occasionally pull in outside stories. So um, one of my favorite methods is just like tooling around really silly listicles about like bizarre moments in history, strange places in the world, etc. And like most of those stories are fake or mostly fake or at least really difficult to talk about with any kind of authority or substance. Um, But like maybe one in 10, if I'm lucky, ends up being a thread worth pulling. And that is what happened when I was looking at a list of the most dangerous places in the world. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's perfect. Which I feel like is a very relative statement. There are many people for whom the world at large is quite dangerous. Right. Um, For me, like Midtown on St. Patrick's Day, pretty dangerous. Yeah, SantaCon, not good. Yes, I was about to say (laughs) SantaCon. That's my Snake Island. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. Um. But one of the uh, one of the features on this list really intrigued me, and it turned out to be like a pretty cool uh, evolution story. So um, this place is frequently referred to as Snake Island. Um, it's in Brazil. Its actual name is Ilha de Quimada Grange. Um, it's off the coast of São Paulo. Um, and its name is Portuguese for Island of the Big Burn, which I feel like is kind of a little bit menacing in its own right, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but there's a reason why most people uh, do not call it by its proper name and rather call it Snake Island, um, because its primary year-round residents are heaps of extremely venomous snakes. Um, heaps of them, you say? Yes, heaps. <laughs> I will- <laughs> heaps. 
actual heaps. Um, they're called Bothrops insularis, or the golden lancehead. Um, and when I say heaps, uh, I mean heaps. Estimates used to suggest that there were as many as one to five snakes per square meter on this island. Um, an actual survey by ecologists a few years back, they were like, that's absurd. Don't be crazy. It's definitely just one snake per square meter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, good. Great. That, that, that makes me normal. feel so much A better. normal number of snakes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Great. Awesome. So the Navy only goes there like once every year, even once every couple of years. I read conflicting things um, to check on the island's lighthouse, which has been automated since 1920. So no one has to live there full time. And the lighthouse is just there to keep ships from going there by accident. Um, So scientists can get um, like special permission to go on like research expeditions there. uh, But for the most part, there are no people and there is definitely no one who lives there. When we talk about like the Chernobyl exclusion zone like Mm -hmm. there are people who secretly live there and the government's just like we look away no one lives here (laughs) Um, interesting it is pretty small it's just like 106 acres I want to say so it's not exactly like prime real estate that people are desperate to live on but uh, people have tried (laughs) really so yeah There are some really gruesome legends from folks over on the closest part of the mainland, um, including that the last people who lived there, which would have been the family of the person who ran the lighthouse right before it was automated in 1920, um, that they were like not just killed by venomous snake bites, but that they were like stalked as prey by a gang of vipers, like something out of a sci-fi channel original movie. Right. I want to say that they're... No one has confirmed this. This almost certainly did not go down like that. But probably someone did die of a venomous bite. There must have been some prompt for them to be like, we're not going to have people work this lighthouse anymore. Um, I don't know much about lighthouse history, but I feel like 1920 was pretty early to have a an autonomous lighthouse. So they must have really been motivated. <laughs> um, so... We can't confirm the, like, scary stories like that. Um, But they do have incredibly potent and fast-acting venom. Um, And do we have an anti-venom for it, or...? So, that's a good question. I don't know that we have one specifically for this snake. But I also... Anti-venom is one of those really cool subjects that I have not (laughs) dove that deep into. So... (laughs) Um, That's fair. So these snakes, more than just like the urban legends around them and the like inherent freakiness of them like owning this island, um, they have this really intriguing backstory. Uh, So around 11,000 years ago, which is when sea levels were rising due to melting ice sheets after the last glacial maximum, the ocean rose high enough to cut off a strip of land from the rest of Brazil. And that's the roughly 106 acres now known as Camada Granja. Um, and it's possible it was already sort of an island, but it would have been like a very, like very shallow water um, separating it from the mainland, or it may have been connected. Um, so that shift, making it a tiny little island, um, trapped some number of snakes in the genus Bothrops, which is a type of venomous pit viper found in the South and Central Americas. 
So they were in this brand new home, and it was one that, as far as scientists can tell, had no natural predators for them, um, at least against adults. Like the baby snakes might get eaten sometimes by um, little critters because baby snakes are tiny. Um, But it's just some frogs, some bugs, some lizards, some birds, and a whole bunch of vipers. Oh, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think I shan't visit. So... On the one hand, there was nothing keeping these slithering predators from reproducing like crazy, which is how you end up with a snake per square meter on your tiny island. Uh, But on the other hand, they didn't have a lot of great food sources. Um, Juveniles can be seen living on like millipedes and stuff like that. Uh, But the biggest prey available to adults would have been birds. That poses a little bit of a problem. Um, Birds are not easy prey for a lot of snakes. I mean, these snakes are seen to go up in trees to hunt, but they don't, it's not thought that they're like super comfy in trees. They don't have a truly prehensile tail. They seem to only go up there to try to find prey. Um, They're not particularly arboreal. And so most snakes in this genus hunt by biting their prey once, letting it go, and then stalking it to attack again as it weakens. And they mm, track mm-hmm. it by like sniffing it out, sniffing its chemicals as it runs across the ground, which is great for like um, a ferret or something. I don't know. <laughs> a, a mammal. Um, Not but, so great for a bird. Exactly. Um, so yeah, a bird doesn't have to be able to get very far to get out of a snake's easy reach, especially since when it's flying through the air, the snake can't really track it by smell. Um, so instead, it seems that the snakes that thrived on this island were the ones that were able to keep prey in their mouths after that first bite. And if that's how you're trying to hunt, having extremely potent venom is pretty important because you need to like get them... Uh, like knocked out quickly enough that they're not just gonna like be like ah f you i'm a bird (laughs) and fly away or like harm the snake right totally yeah all that flapping pecking absolutely not um all that flapping and pecking oh my god (laughs) so we don't have a great handle actually on how deadly this venom is in a practical sense for humans because humans have kept their distance. Um, But we know that their closest relatives on the mainland can absolutely kill humans. Um, And chemical analysis shows that the venom of these island snakes um, is more potent and faster acting than their close cousins by like a lot. One caveat there is that these snakes haven't had access to mammals to prey on for at least those 11,000 years. So the venom has definitely evolved to specifically target like insects and reptiles and birds. But um, I wouldn't recommend like trying to test out how much protection that (laughs) offers a human. Um, Probably not going to be a fun time. And uh, I promise we'd get back to the island's only slightly less threatening official name before wrapping up. Um, so Isla de Camada Granja means Island of the Big Burn. It refers to like a slash and burn or a wildfire. And apparently at some point there was an effort to burn the rainforest there, um, either to make room for banana plantations or to just like provide home for fishermen, depending on who you ask. I wasn't able to find a date for when this happened or any further details, but it is the name of the island. So I feel like that, you know, pretty, pretty plausible that this occurred at some point. Um, But it also clearly failed, (laughs) as the point would have been to clear out the snake habitat, 
Um, and the snakes are still there. Like snakes one, human zero. Uh, the island of the big burn was not sufficiently burned. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but despite their scary countenance, their spooky vibes, um, these snakes are in great danger and it is our fault. <laughs> Um, they're critically endangered, in fact, because this island is their only native habitat, uh, which is what happens when uh, rising sea levels just trap you and a few of your homies on <laughs> a small body of land. Um, apparently, deforestation on the mainland has also decreased the number of migratory birds that hang out around the island. Uh, so that threatens their main food source. There's also naturally a lot of inbreeding, um, and that is probably going to start causing problems if it hasn't already uh, as the gene pool like folds in on itself too many times. Um, and then also I've seen mentioned in a few places a historical, uh, shall we say, overzealousness of scientists who visited collecting specimens, um, though I think people have been much more careful about that in recent decades. So I, I think that was probably a pretty small part of the problem. Um, unfortunately, because humans are awful, there's also an extremely lucrative poaching market for these vipers, um, simply huh. because they're rare. People like rare things. Um, I so would poaching this, isn't to, to have them as pets? Yeah, or? but for the, like the exotic pet trade. Huh. Um, so yeah, don't do that. That's, uh, rude, I would say. Bad move. So rude. And also like very dangerous, like. Like I don't want one of those in my home. Like no, <laughs> Mm-mm. I don't. I don't judge. I don't judge people who live a life of crime. But like, don't hurt animals, and also don't go to an island that's so full of poisonous snakes. <laughs> venomous. Sorry, it's venomous if they have to bite you. It's poisonous if you have to bite them. <sighs> Always important to remember. Um, yes. there are several in <laughs> captivity throughout the state of Sao Paulo um, if you want to visit without breaking the law and let's be real, probably dying. So um, if you want to see these snacks, uh, go to Brazil and um, there's there are definitely some zoos and research institutions that will hook you up. Um, cool. Th- that's my story. <laughs> I love that you called them snacks. <laughs> Snack um, I, I feel like I learned a lot about this island. It's also really interesting that like, the bird population and the like insect population has been able to sustain them for so long. Yeah. Because, you know, there's always that fear that like they'll breed too much and then their food sources will collapse. But I guess the fact that they rely on birds has been really helpful for them. Right. Because they could have new animals come in, but then like, you know, as you mentioned, deforestation and whatnot. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. that That's like. Also what, some what cannibalism. Yeah, it's like I was waiting what for the story to take a turn right, for cannibalism. The cannibalism. I was like, the baby <laughs> snakes don't survive. Like, oh, um, <laughs> okay. Well, and it, you know, I think what's really interesting from an evolutionary perspective is that, you know, so many, most animals, when we think about their evolution, it's the pressure they're getting is like avoiding their own predators or um, hunting specific prey and obviously like these snakes have evolved around specific prey but their only predator is other members of their own species so um you know they they haven't run quite as rampant as like say a goat because goats don't tend to kill each other i say that carefully with a tend because i'm sure it's happened at least (laughs) before um 
so yeah i i hope the snakes continue to thrive because like what are you know they can have that island yeah they should yeah, have it they can have it they've had it for so long they're not hurting they, yeah you know, like, like diversity Except those, like, maybe I that like lighthouse guy in 1920 but um since then yeah. they've <laughs> since been then, they've totally minding their years. own business so <laughs> so rachel i haven't looked up these snakes are they cute um there's guys they look like uh i would say they look like a viper as someone who's <laughs> neither so afraid they're cute. of snakes nor like particularly fond of them it's a pretty yeah they're like they have like a nice yellowy color they're they're definitely golden as their name says they have very pretty golden eyes i would say i would say they're pretty I, mean, I wouldn't necessarily say they're cute they're okay. a little too big to be cute they're not quite like anaconda size but they're <laughs> <laughs> um but you know Depending on how our listeners feel about snakes, their opinions may vary wildly in either direction. So, <laughs> I mean, I love snakes, but I have a really, really healthy fear of them. Um, so, yeah, I I think they're gorgeous. Yeah, but that's me. I think they're. I do think they're beautiful. Very few snakes I would call cute, but it's a <laughs> semantics. Well, that's where we differ, Rachel Feltman. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And um, Ariel, talk to us about animals, sign language, humans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the story I want to tell is one that... I've been telling in a much longer and larger (laughs) format for season one of a show about animals. Um, So, you know, I'm going to attempt to try and kind of like boil it down a little bit and and not give you too much, but give you some of the good stuff, you know, because I also want you to listen to that other pod. Um, But yeah, so so basically this is this is how it goes. So the story has to do with scientists attempting to teach American Sign Language to great apes, which you know, maybe you're aware of this, maybe you've heard a little bit about this, but I promise that you have not heard all of this. Um, So there was once a a time in the field of psychology where researchers really wanted to try and understand the origins of language and how humans acquire it um, and how it works, basically. And uh, so one of the ways that psychologists decided to try to look into this, and this was in the 60s and 70s, was by teaching great apes American Sign Language, because we are closely related to great apes. We are a great ape. Um, And so the idea was, well, if we can if we can teach American Sign Language to great apes, to other great apes like chimps and gorillas, um, then maybe we can sort of get a sense for how this happens in humans and learn more about ourselves. Um, And so there are some famous apes who were part of these experiments. Uh, You probably know about Coco the gorilla. Uh, she Coco. was uh, a gorilla that uh, was born in San Francisco and was trained by this woman named Penny Patterson uh, in and learned to sign. Uh, and she died in 2018. Uh, and then there's also one who is a lesser known but super important uh, that you might have also heard about uh, named Nim Chimpsky. Now, Nim Chimpsky was a chimp. Um, and he was named after Noam Chomsky, but in a like sneaky, trying to like laugh at Noam Chomsky kind of way. Um, and he was trained 
Well, the lead researcher was this guy who is still around. He's a professor at Columbia University, and his name is Herbert Terrace. So uh, Penny Patterson is also still around, by the way. So Herbert Terrace and Penny Patterson, two people you need to know about. So basically, you know, think about it. We're in the 70s. Scientists are like, ooh, language. Like, how does it work? What is it? Um, Can we teach it to animals? Can we talk to animals? And uh, you have these two experiments who hap- that happen at one point simultaneously. So you have this Coco the gorilla being taught American Sign Language in the San Francisco area. And then you also have Nim Chimpsky being taught American Sign Language in New York City. Uh, so, uh, and by New York City, I mean like a brownstone in New York City. You oh, have wow. this chimp living with a family in a brownstone. Totally wild stuff. There's a lot um, that I could dig into about how weirdly set up these experiments were. Um, but I think the really important thing to know is that while the aim of these experiments was to teach American Sign Language to great apes, um, <laughs> the uh, people, the scientists who were doing this teaching uh, barely knew that language themselves. So... They were not deaf. They were not fluent in sign language. They had not grown up in deaf families. This was something that they kind of picked up very fast. Small oversight. Thinking like, hey, I'll just learn a brand new language and then try to teach it to another being. Who signed off on this? Um, And that is... (laughs) Sorry? Like, who who signed off on this? This is... um, There's a lot of moving pieces here. Honestly, (laughs) this is something that I really dig into in the... Final episode of a show about animals that is was published just before the bonus episode of a show about animals. So if you look at the feed, you'll be able to find it. Um, but yeah, this was kind of how things were done back then. And it does kind of denote, in my opinion, uh, a honestly a sort of condescension when it comes to American Sign Language and the complexity, complexities of this language and its value. Um, and I actually find that to be like quite sad. Um, because in my mind, it is it is very clear that these scientists were like, I can just pick up American Sign Language, this will be easy, and then I can teach a language to an animal. Um, and that is like some of the like really not pretty sides of the this kind of work. Um, there were other things that were kind of sad about this work and kind of weird. Um, so for instance, Coco the gorilla was fed uh, a lot of meat throughout her life. Uh, gorillas are definitely super vegetarian. Um, and, you know, it's hard to say exactly what kind of impact that might have had on Coco. But, like, it it is clear that it was not... They were not attempting to try to replicate the life that these animals could have in the wild, right? A lot of them were dressed. They were, put, they were wearing clothes. Uh, at one point, Nim was breastfed by a, a woman who was caring for him, um, which... <laughs> Which I spoke to that woman. I spoke to her about it for the podcast. Um, and she had her reasons for doing that. But, uh, yeah, there there were some things. They also sometimes, like, Nim was given weed to smoke um, to chill him out. What? So, you know, there's a lot of stuff. It was the 70s. Um, and things were done in a particular way. And some of it was really chaotic. Um, the Nim Chimsky experiment, I think, in particular, was incredibly chaotic. So if you want to hear about that, go check out the podcast. But so I've spent the last like few months talking to people who worked on these experiments, and they've detailed all of these wild things that were going on back then. 
and um, also like the rather sad conclusions of these studies. I want to give too much away about that, but I do want to talk about the science for a little bit. So both Nim and Coco were raised almost exclusively surrounded by humans with the idea that they would pick up language through reward, right? So sort of in the same way that like when you are a kid, if you say your first word, your parents are like, oh my God, good job. And then you say it again, like kind of with that idea. Also kind of like what we do with a dog when the dog finally sits, you know, like a similar thing. I was going to say it's like when you get M&Ms for pooping in the potty. Which actually, fun fact, my older sister got M&M's, but then for me, my parents switched to Cheerios. That's so disrespectful. (laughs) That is really not okay. (laughs) They realized it was just being handed something and being, ooh. (laughs) Remind me to talk about your mom, to talk to your mom about this next time I see her. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is not. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, yeah. So the idea is like, and they also, you know, they drill them. They they are trying to teach them all of these words. And the chimps, the, the, the chimp and the gorilla, they're picking up these signs and they are requesting things. They and And to the people training these animals, it really seems like they're having a conversation, that there's a dialogue. They're, they feel like they're learning a lot. Um, and if you, it seems like it's working. And so... Coco is is starting to become famous. She's on the cover of Nat Geo. She uh, is starting to get known. And then meanwhile, Nim Chimsky, um, at some point, the experiment is stopped. It ends kind of abruptly. Um, and Nim gets sent back to Oklahoma, where he was taken from when he was two weeks old. Oh, my God. But he um, was this sophisticated gets- city brownstone ape now right who's who's also never been around other chimps since he was two weeks old and so he is now a traumatized chimp surrounded by other chimps and doesn't know how to interact so it's actually quite sad yeah so the experiment ends and the reasoning behind that is that nim is now dangerous according to herbert terrace um he is biting people he is i mean he's being he's being a chimp yeah like that's upset that's just like a normal adult behavior but they don't have so at this point they're in a mansion in the Bronx where that's where they're teaching him sign language. They don't have any of the protocols in place that you would see in a zoo. There is no there are no safety measures for any of the people working with Nim. So it was uh, extremely poorly run in that respect. Um, and Nim gets sent back and Herbert Terrace says he's too dangerous. After that, he starts analyzing the data, the videos. He starts looking at the videos and he writes up a study where he's like, it worked. I taught sign language to this chimp. I'm I like, I, we did great. Uh, he even submits it to a journal. And then uh, at one point he is looking at the tapes again. He see, and he notices something. He notices that the teacher in one particular clip, he notices that the teacher appears to be signing some of the signs that Nim signs like a half a second before Nim signs them. And he's like, shit i am a victim of the clever hans effect and i can tell you what the clever hans effect is but basically what he's saying is like oh these animals are getting prompted like regardless of whether it's like they either know that that if you ask a certain things what like cloud like word cloud they need to be in like if you say like oh do you love me and they'll be like love caring 
happy and then like everybody's like happy because they're like oh okay so like they learn that or or they're actually just repeating signs that they're seeing in any given moment so he notices that he publishes a completely different study so he retracts the before the first study gets gets published he retracts it rewrites it um resubmits it and that's how basically the field of ape language research starts to collapse this is a big deal because in the study that he publishes, he ends up calling out all the other scientists. It wasn't just Penny Patterson with Coco the Gorilla. It was it was a lot of other research that was being done. He calls out all these other scientists saying, you guys are also the victim of the Clever Hans effect. And basically, Clever Hans was this horse, uh, I think in Germany. I, one yeah. would assume. Uh, and, <laughs> right? I think it was in Germany. Um, and it was this horse that uh, was famous for being able to do very simple math problems. Um, and this horse is like touring in the world. The, the, the scientists can't figure out how is it that this horse can do very simple math problems. And at some point, uh, it takes them a year to figure it out. Actually, um, they realize that actually Clever Hans is being prompted and he's being prompted because Clever, Clever Hans can only get the uh, response right when his trainer is in the room and the trainer is not doing anything. At least he doesn't think he is, but he is. As, so Clever Hans, basically, he would um, stomp his hoof on the ground until he reached a certain number that was the answer to the very simple math problem. So let's just say one plus two, he would stomp until three. And he got it right almost all the time. Um, but turns out that the trainer was holding his breath. And he would let it out whenever Hans reached the right number. Oh, my god! And the horse was attuned to that. He's still quite a clever Hans for knowing yeah, how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, and that's the thing, right? It's that even with the idea that like, and by the way, for, for what it's worth, I actually think that um, Herbert Terrace and his science that, that basically if you ask Herbert Terrace today, he thinks that everything was prompted. These animals never understood what they were doing. He's still very adamant about that. Um, I think that the truth lies somewhere in between. Um, I do think that these animals to a certain extent, like these, like they, if, you, if they request a banana, the, the chimp probably actually wants a banana and knows what it's doing. Right. But um, is it a sentence? Is it uh, language the way we think about language? No, they're, they're mostly just making very simple requests because they can and it works. Um, and then they're also trying to get to the right answer in order to get a reward. So that's a lot of what's going on. Um, and I think that there's a lot of nuance there. So please listen to the podcast for the full, like, can we talk to animals answer? Um, but basically with this, the, what you correctly pointed out is that Clever Hans is still incredibly clever, <laughs> right? Like 100% so smart um, because he is reading the cues. He is doing what he needs to do in order to get what he wants, yeah. which is a reward. And so are these animals and they are reading our body language in ways that we don't even know <laughs> is, is happening. Right. And so it's a different form of intelligence. It's it's wonderful. The problem is that that's not what these psychologists were trying to study. They were not trying to study how smart are these animals. They're trying to study, like, what are the origins of language and what can we learn about humans? And so that's why they were teaching these animals a human language, which in many ways is like, why were we doing that? Right. Like, <laughs> it's the question of like, do other 
species have communication with each other that is like right. equivalent to human language like that's a really interesting yeah. question and then there's like are animals smart enough to communicate with us effectively which again is a really interesting question or like are they smart enough that's even like a weird way to phrase it but like is our cognition um like compatible enough that we can effectively communicate with each other interesting question both of those are very different from like can they learn right. to can mimic they learn a human, human language language <laughs> yes yeah yeah no totally and i mean i guess for me what is like really important is that this isn't the only reason that we have since changed the way that we do a lot of this kind of work work in this general sphere but it's a contributor what happened in the 70s is did contribute to that which is these days we look more towards like how human animal communication happens but more on the the non-human animals terms um we also look at communication within a species right and that is part of a much broader field that we now refer to as animal cognition. And part of what happened in the 70s, that that aversion, like it became sort of talking about language with animals became a big no-no. And to this day, and there are dispute people who dispute this, to this day, language is still thought of as being a solely a human thing in a lot of spheres of science. Like we are thought, like it is supposed to be like, sort of the final frontier, the final barrier that separates us from other animals is language. And these studies are part of the reason why that barrier still exists in a lot of fields. Yeah, it's just such a limiting way of of thinking about animal cognition, including humans. Um, I know it's it's very easy for me to say that being my armchair animal cognition researcher but like it's just from the outside not having any of um you know like the burden of this is the way we do things and this is the way things are it just seems so obviously limiting and there are so many animals that are have like such fascinating and complex um intercommunication with each other and the idea that like that's inherently lesser below some threshold is just like very limiting and I think I think one group that's really good about addressing how limiting that is are people who think about like what life on other planets might look like because I think yeah Mm -hmm. all those astrobiologists are like we're gonna if we're really lucky and we get to Europa and there's some sentient space jellyfish we are gonna have to get our heads out of our own butts (laughs) yeah 100% and you know the the conclusion that I've sort of come to after working on this story for months, is that it is sort of, well, honestly, extremely self-centered, but also sort of um, extremely naive to think that the only thing that we would need in order to communicate with animals is a shared language. Um, And I think the reason why I've come to that conclusion is because, like, we don't, we sense the world and we interact with the world in a certain way, right? Um. My dog senses the world and interacts with Reggie. the world in a, in a, in a right. My dog Reggie um, senses the world and interacts with the world in a very different way. Right? For instance, uh, she can smell things that I cannot at all perceive. Right? She can, uh, and and so, and not only that, but she's continuously smelling. So the way that a dog's nose is set up, like they're just like 
always smelling even when they're exhaling breath. Oh my gosh, Whereas we are that. only smelling when we take in breath. Yeah, no, it's, it's super they, cool. They have those swirly little noses? Is that what that is doing? Yes, exactly. Ah! Yes, 100%. They actually have these little chambers where they like store. And it's very ah! cool. It's all super cool. <laughs> and they take in so much. Sorry, I like kicked my microphone. <laughs> it's very <Sorry>. exciting. Um, <laughs> I got really excited. So they take in so much information, right? And so if I were to have a conversation with Reggie, the thing that she would, the things that she would talk to me about, like let's just say we have a shared language, I wouldn't even begin to be able to grasp. And so thinking that all you need in order to have an actual like conversation with an animal is a shared language is really reductive. Really just it is just so it feels really myopic to me after having like looked at all of this research over a period of months. It was also at the time cutting edge research. People thought that they were doing something really cool. Um, people fell in love with Coco the gorilla. She was on Reading Rainbow. She was on Mr. Rogers. Oh my god, I do remember she, her. She being became on a celebrity. Mr. Rogers on Reading Rainbow. Yeah. And the the videos of her meeting Robin Williams and the pictures of her meeting Leonardo DiCaprio and 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 all of these celebrities. She was huge, and to this day, people still think that she, her language ability that her language abilities far exceed what she was actually capable of. Because the truth is that she was never actually taught proper American Sign Language. And even though she may have learned more than a thousand signs over the course of her life, in any given day, the amount of words that she was using was very, very limited. She was still using them to communicate. 100% she was communicating. But she wasn't doing what the... what Well, what, let me just be direct. She wasn't doing what... Penny Patterson says that she was doing, right? Um, and so that is basically that. That was my fact. It was a lot of facts all yeah. in one, but oh that's my, my fact. Well, um, <laughs> I am now going to get caught up on your podcast. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first couple episodes, and I'm really excited to listen to the rest. Um, I was just saving it for myself as a little, you know, a little treat. Uh, it's a listeners... great like holiday binge. Oh, absolutely, listeners! Yeah. Don't forget to check out. A show about animals. I always think that I'm getting the name wrong because it is also a description of the show. I know. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. But the, the joke really is that, and it's not really a joke, the, it is a show about animals. Including except us. that the species that we're focusing on is mostly actually yeah. humans. Well, I love it. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? For me, it was the, the swirly dog noses. <laughs> <laughs> like there's just like so the so fact many. within the fact within the fact within the fact i'm still thinking about nim chimsky smoking weed like i really haven't even gotten off of that yet so yeah, yeah. well ariel you you win <laughs> thank so, you uh thank you for coming on the show and uh listeners don't forget to check them out on a show about animals the weirdest thing i learned this week is a popular science podcast we're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.